I came up from church and, you know, Trisha's laying down for an afternoon nap. And I just said, Hey, we need to have a conversation. And she said about what? And I said about us. And she's like, well, what about us? And I said, I'm done. And she's like, you're done with what? And I said, I'm done with you. Like I'm out. I don't want to be married anymore. I'm not in love with you anymore. I, I'm, I don't want to be in ministry anymore. I'm having an affair. It's with your best friend and I want to be with her. How do you forgive when the wound is still open? How do you leave a legacy of redemption instead of dysfunction? How do you trust God when your deepest fears are realized? Join me, Sarah May, along with some wise mentors along the way as we explore these and other messy heart topics and the strategies we can use to seek healing in the pain and restoration in the ruins. Welcome to the Complicated Heart Podcast. Hey everyone, today I have on the show Justin and Trisha Davis, founders of Refine Us Ministries, which focuses on helping to build healthy marriages and families. Today we're going to hear Justin and Trisha's story. We're going to hear what led Justin to having an affair, how Trisha forgave him, and where they are today. Justin and Trisha, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks so much. Can you guys tell us how long you've been married and how old you were when you got married? We were babies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we um, we met uh, my junior year of college, Trisha's freshman year of college. So I was 20, Trisha was 18. And then we got married uh, 1995. And so we, I was... I was 21 and Trisha just turned 20. 20. Yeah, yeah. I think that's right. You're about to turn 22. Yeah. Uh, so now we've been married 23 years. 23 years. Just really crazy because it used to be like, oh, we've been married for 15 years. That's so cool. We've been married 20 years. Now it's like, how on earth are we old enough to be married for 23 years? Yeah, I realized in the last couple of months, I am the old guy I used to make fun of at the YMCA. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I know. And you guys have a kid that just got married. We do. Yeah. Well, when we just adopted two kids, so we have Micah, who's 22. We have Elijah, that's 19. We have Isaiah, who's 15. And then we just adopted a 10 and an eight-year-old a year ago. So we we had light at the end of the tunnel, and then we just kind of started all over. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's kind of how I feel with the puppy that we just got. I mean, different, but you know. Well, you guys have quite a story to tell. How about you just go ahead and tell your story for us? Well, you know, as we, as we said, we got, we got married young and uh, we met in Bible college. So I was studying to be a pastor and uh, Trish uh, came to, came to Bible college really to precede her high school boyfriend. And so uh, after successfully breaking them up and us getting together, (laughs) um, uh, we, we got married and then we got pregnant uh, early on in marriage, but uh, we dove headfirst into student ministry and did student ministry for the first seven years of our marriage relationship. And one of the things about um, our marriage in those early days is we really just felt like God had brought us together to change the world. Like mm-hmm. uh, Trish uh, sang, and I don't know if you remember, like we, we had all these tracks, like these Amy Grant songs on cassette. And, you know, and so she would, you know, she would sing special music and I would, I would speak. And it just was like this, um, you know, this kind of this fairy tale of we just felt like God's anointing and God's call was on our, our life and our mm-hmm. marriage. And so seven years into ministry, we felt like God was leading us to start a church for people who didn't go to church. And so 
we were actually living in Nashville, Tennessee at the time and uh, felt like God was calling us to Indianapolis, close to where I'm from. And and so we moved in 2002 to the northeast side of Indianapolis and started a church from scratch. We had $5,000 to our name and just thought by the time we ran out of this money, we should have a church going. And in Davis fashion, we found out literally like the house is packed up. We're getting ready to move that we were pregnant unexpectedly with baby number three. So now we were expecting, we're planning a church. It was just, it was crazy. Yeah. And we, we didn't know what we were doing. And that kind of, that was a, kind of an asset at the time, because I think if we would have known what we were doing, we wouldn't have done it. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so, um, so we had all these hopes and all these dreams and really this just this belief, this core belief that God was going to show up and God was going to provide. And so uh, we moved to Noblesville, Indiana um, in June of 2002. And a week later, we had our very first service and we had 12 people that showed up. And, you know, it was it was one of those things where um, any sign of success felt successful. And so we just we just we knew how to work hard. We knew how to do ministry together. And, um, you know, we, you know, Trisha, obviously she was super sick, uh, with our, with our, uh, third child, just morning sickness and stuff. And so she, to the best of her ability, you know, poured into this church plant and then we launched public services the following fall. And so fall of 2003 and it, it just took off. Yeah. And, uh, from September of 2003 to Easter of 2005, our, our church would go to over 700 people. Hmm. What was Visible from the outside was all this success. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But what was going on on the inside was just this drift in our marriage relationship. And more importantly, um, this deficiency in my character and my relationship with God that began to erode our marriage relationship and, and really the moral fabric of, of my life. Yeah. I think it's so interesting. You know, we look at people in ministry and we think, especially a husband and wife in ministry, and we're like, look at them. They're heroes. They must have this amazing marriage. Everything must be perfect because they're just so godly. And we just never know what is going on behind the scenes. Yeah, we were we were amazing ministry partners. Like that just worked well. We just got each other's giftings and we just assumed that gifting equated godly character. Mm. And so over time we became amazing ministry partners, but we became horrible marriage partners. And so our marriage was almost this inconvenience in our leadership. And it became this shift of like, well, I'll do this if you'll do this at home. And then Mm. we would go to church and it was like, oh, we'll do whatever you need. It was just this very weird erosion. It was like this slow drift that we kind of knew it was happening, but we didn't really acknowledge it. And then three years into our church plan on October 9th, 2005, it all came to a head. I came home from church and, you know, Trish was laying down for an afternoon nap and I just said, hey, we need to have a conversation. She said about what? And I said about us. She's like, well, what about us? And I said, I'm done. And she's like, you're done with what? Mm. And I said, I'm done with you. Like, I'm out. I don't want to be married anymore. I'm not in love with you anymore. I'm, I don't want to be in ministry anymore. I'm having an affair. It's with your best friend. And I want to be with her. I have to tell you, when I read that scene in the book of you saying that to Trisha, it just, I pictured myself in that spot and just what that would feel like. Trisha, what on earth like was going through your mind when those words came out of his mouth? I mean, were you totally shocked or were you kind of like, 
not surprised, you know, like this isn't a, a surprise. What was going on in your mind? You know, I don't think I've ever shared this part of our story. It was weird. I, I didn't know, but yet I did. The Friday before, um, I had asked Justin to go out on a date and he said no. And I just knew something was not right. And so then on Saturday, uh, I was leading worship that coming Sunday. And so on Saturday, I remember going to the store and spending like an ungodly amount on a new outfit, which to know me is to know is really absurd because like my family has to do intervention because I wear clothes too long. And so I buy this outfit. I get up at the crack of dawn because we're already getting up early on Sunday morning because we're a portable church at the time. And I do like everything in my power to look beautiful. And I'm, I'm not joking. When I walked into church that morning, I got more compliments that day than I had ever heard before. Even a compliment from the person that Justin was having an affair with. And I remember like, going behind the stage to get on stage to lead worship. And I remember the song that I was leading. And as I was coming in the back, I found Justin and my best friend in this like intense conversation. They were very close and I thought something is not right, but then I just dismissed it. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, I subconsciously knew something was not right, but I didn't. When the confession happened, it it was this weird place of being an absolute shock and devastation. But then at the same time, this moment of truth that I'm not crazy, like what I was feeling was really happening. And so, yeah, I mean, it was both of those things. Well, and I, the, uh, you know, the confession wasn't a confession of remorse or repentance. It was just a confession of resignation. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally got that. I mean, you had kind of like, would it be appropriate to say like you'd hardened your heart? Oh, Absolutely. Well, I think, you know, what I've come to learn over the last 13 years is any time that you engage in sin that you know is going to hurt those that you love, you have to divorce yourself emotionally Yes, from the carnage that you're like, you have to have a hard heart. Yeah. Um, I, I can't remember if I share this in the book. I think I share this in the book. Um, but, you know, probably a month or so before the affair started, I was out with a, a friend of mine who was also on our board and he was pouring his heart out to me about some marriage issues that they were having, not anything immoral, just like normal stuff. And I felt in that moment that the Holy spirit was prompting me to confess to him some the feelings that I was having toward this person, as well as, um, you know, the struggle with pornography that I was engaged with. And at the same time, simultaneously to feeling convicted to do that, I felt this other, voice say, well, he's your, he's the chairman of your board and he's your largest contributor. And if you tell him this, you're going to lose everything. Yeah. And so from that moment on, I just really just dialed down the, the prompting and the influence of the Holy spirit in my heart, because I just, I was fearful that if anybody knew that I would lose everything and what ended up happening is I lost everything anyway. Yeah, you did share that story in the book, actually. And I thought that was so interesting because I feel like for all of us, whenever, you know, we're going down a road that is going to lead to death, essentially, Mm. I feel like God offers this opportunity for us to come out of the dark 
and walk in the light. And I'll never forget, you know, when I got your book in the mail, well, I didn't get it. Jesse, my husband got it and he was reading it. And during this time, I was on the verge. I don't know if it would have happened, but I was feeling just real apathetic in my marriage, which is worse than hate, we know, because, right, like there's no emotion. You just don't even care. Mm -hmm. And I just, I was talking to this guy online that I had worked with. And I remember thinking like, I could easily go down a path here because this attention feels good. And I don't, you know, I'm just real, whatever. I just don't care about my marriage right now. And of course, you know, then you kind of avoid God too. And then my husband's reading your book and he's reading your story and he asks me to come and sit with him. And he knew that I was apathetic. He could see it. And I was like, fine, whatever, I'll come and sit down with you. And he asked me point blank, have you ever thought about having an affair? And right there was the defining moment where it was like, okay, well, I can just say no because he's my husband and I don't want him to get angry at me or I can come out of the dark and say yes. And I do not know how on earth I was able to, probably because I had a friend praying for me because I did share my temptation with her. And I said, yes, like I am thinking about it. And instead of getting angry, and this shocked me because he's always like, if you ever cheated on me, like I would leave you, blah, blah, blah. Like those were the kind of conversations we would have. Mm. And when I told him, it was like the Holy Spirit must have taken over because he was so gentle. And he said, tell me about it. Like, let's let's talk about why. And in that moment, I can't even tell you, it was like the temptation was broken and we had this raw, honest conversation and it just changed the trajectory of our marriage. And so, Justin, when you told that story, I thought for so many of us, we, we get these offers almost to walk in the light. And so often it's just easier to stay in the dark because we're so afraid. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, 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 I feel like as a pastor, there's an epidemic in Christianity um, especially Christian leadership, anytime you tie moral behavior to financial stability, um, it's, a dangerous, it's a dangerous cocktail because most pastors feel like if I share that I'm struggling, not, not even morally, but like, let's just say um, communication. Um, let's say I'm struggling, my wife and I, um, my wife has resentment toward the church. Mm-hmm. My wife has resentment towards me. We're not connecting sexually. Like, if I share that, then I'm going to compromise my authority position in the church. And then if there is sexual temptation or pornography or um, masturbation or feelings toward a, a person that goes to the church, that is, there's no way that anybody's going to share that because I'm going to lose my job and I'm not going to get paid. Mm. And so I feel like there's this cycle in, in, in Christian leadership that, I'm not saying people aren't responsible for their own choices. I'm just saying there's very few, when I got out of ministry after the, after the affair, you know, I worked, I worked in the secular world world for four years. People having affairs all the time. Didn't, they never lost their job over it. And so um, there's that, there is that dynamic in Christian leadership that I think almost facilitates hiddenness um, because there isn't a safe place to land. There isn't a safe place to confess. And, and what I've looked back on that interaction, I think if I would have been honest, um, I might have lost the opportunity to lead my church for a season, but I wouldn't have lost my entire ministry. 
And, um, and I, and I wish I would have, you know, that that's one of the things I wish I would have leaned into when I felt prompted to. Um, another thing I think we mentioned in the book is people don't change until the pain of staying the same is greater than the fear of change. Right. And, and so, you know, coming into like, like you had a moment there where yeah. staying the same was going to cost you more, right. Than talking to Jesse and actually embracing transformation. Mm. And so I, I think that um, it's oftentimes, you know, people often wonder why they go through trials. It's because unless we go through trials, we don't embrace transformation. We just um, settle for getting better in our behavior. I want to go back and I want to ask you a specific question, Justin, and then I want to know what was going on in your mind that allowed yourself to go down the path of engaging in a relationship with another woman. Um, how long was the affair? Um, well, we had been friends with this couple for seven years up to this point. And so there was a, there was a longstanding relationship there that was appropriate and not, you know, was, it didn't cross lines. The actual inappropriate aspect of the relationship was probably five or six weeks. Okay. And at that, at that point, um, Trisha, did you have any inclination at all? Like, I know that your gut was kind of telling you something was off, but other than that, was there any clue or any, you know, looking back or in your mind? Yeah. When the affair came out, people close to us were not shocked. Mm, That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It was like, what do you mean? And the second part of that is because I am a crazy loyal person. Like if you called me and said, I need you, I would find my way to get on an airplane to get to you. Um, I just, it's not something that I've worked towards. It's like, I always say, God, you gave me a little bit too much of that. Um, Because I realized that the way that I am wired Um, I've had to learn to understand what it means to be a wife, mom, and leader um, as a loyal person. And so uh, leaders that lead under the umbrella of loyalty have lots of blind spots. And so we just assume everybody is for us. And so we're shocked when people aren't. And so although I knew things were not right with my best friend, I knew that they were not right with Justin the loyalty piece in me could not fathom them choosing this path. I just, I just could not see it. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense to me. So Justin, what was going on in your own mind and heart that allowed you to go down this path of getting into an affair? Can you, can you walk us down the road that sort of led to that vulnerability? I think that my situation was kind of textbook. In that, um, you know, Trish and I, you know, we were separated for two and a half months. We, we didn't talk for the next 10 days after the confession. And I started going to counseling by myself after a few days because initially I was just leaving her uh, to go with this person. And so I think <clears throat> for me personally, there was a long history of abuse and brokenness that went unaddressed in my life that opened me up to have wounds that I didn't even know needed healing. And so, you know, I was sexually abused by two different people. Uh, Once when I was probably four or five years old, and then another time later in elementary school. And I told my mom about it when um, 
I don't know if you, you remember this, this was big in Indiana. Ryan White um, was a student that had, had the AIDS virus. Mm, I do remember this. Mm-hmm. And he was banned from going to school mm-hmm. because people were afraid of sitting on a toilet seat and getting AIDS. And so his parents sued the state of Indiana. They sued uh, the school system. So it was big news. And so when all this came out, a lot of talk of AIDS came out. And I told my mom at that point that I was abused as a kid because I, not because I wanted healing. I was a, a hypochondriac and I was afraid I had AIDS. And, um, and she just kind of dismissed it. And so I just, at that point, I just kind of buried it, you know, and didn't really deal with it. And I thought, well, if my mom doesn't believe me or doesn't have anything about it, then it must not have happened. Mm. And so then couple that with, you know, starting to, you know, watch inappropriate movies, high school and college. Um, and then that just progressed. And even in our marriage relationship, I would say the things like to Trish, like, oh, it's just one sex scene or we can fast forward through the nudity parts or, or whatever. And so that began to, you know, feed into this, um, pornography addiction that I hid for 10 years. Wow. And so for, for me, one of the things my counselor said, and this is not to minimize the affair at all, but he just said, you know, you were looking to figuratively blow your brains out and she was the gun. Mm. And so all of, all of that brokenness and all of that, um, hiddenness, it just, you can't, you know, the truth comes out eventually. And, and so I think that that relationship was in the right place at the right time and not, not in a sense of like God's will, but in the sense of um, being in that moment in my life where I was susceptible, vulnerable, and willing mm. and in a position um, of authority as well to, um, you know, leverage that, to, you know, in a way that um, probably, you know, most people um, wouldn't understand unless you've been a pastor of a church. Like there's a, there, there's a, there's a sense of authority there that I abused. And so I don't want to, I don't want to minimize the other person's role in it, but um, a lot of it really had less to do with that person specifically and more to do with my own wounds and my own uh, hiddenness that, that I had never dealt with. Yeah. When you like finally made that decision to have the affair after the first, I'll say, encounter, were you relieved that you finally crossed the boundary or were you guilt stricken or what, what was that like? Yeah, I feel like, you know, you were it's, it's been 13 years, so I don't necessarily um, have like recall of how I felt like if it were, you know, last year or whatever, mm-hmm. but I, I feel like, once I crossed that line, I felt like I could not go back. So I felt more trapped. I didn't feel relieved. I didn't, I just felt like, Oh my gosh, I have, I have to leave my wife now because I have no other choice. And I, we, and we could, I could tell like there, I, there was a significant shift in Justin's demeanor in his posture. He, Mm. he was mean. He was, everything was my fault. It was like, if he could, convince himself that all of his choices were because of me, then he wouldn't have to feel the guilt of it. So those, those six weeks were 
I think he, probably even more exhausting than he could ever they imagine. Were, they were brutal. And then we also, as a staff, we all went to Catalyst that year. And that's really the first time I even confessed it um, was at Catalyst to a friend of mine. And um, I told him I was going to leave Trish when I got back from Catalyst. Wow. And, um, and I was kind of already resigned in my mind. And, and what was so interesting about Catalyst that year is it, I, I remember <laughs> – this is ironic now thinking back about it, but Bill Hybels did a talk on sexual purity uh, that year. Wow. And, um, you know, Louis Giglio spoke about moral, you know, it wasn't about how to grow your church. Mm-hmm. It was more about yeah. your moral character. And I just, Erwin McManus spoke and um, like some of my, some of my heroes and I was just so cold and so uh, distant. I, I, I remember like defiantly not taking notes. Um, I just didn't want to hear it. And so I think that there was a there was a definite walling off emotionally and spiritually that took place after I crossed that line. And um, up to that point, you know, it, it was it was like inappropriate as far as like um, the amount of time we were spending together or um, emails. You know, there wasn't a te- there wasn't text messaging at that at that time, um, but it was it was not unrecoverable. Right. It was like. We, we, you know, cross some boundaries. When that happened, it was more like, okay, I, I have to leave Trish now and I have to get out of ministry because I, I've, well, in my, in my mind, I committed the unpardonable sin. There, I tell people all the time, there's, I, I can name three insurance agents in my hometown that are former pastors that had moral failing. I just never, I just knew my ministry was over forever once that happened. Trisha, how did you respond after you found out, like, what did you do? What were your next steps? Like in the moment I flipped my lid and, uh, left the house and I, you know, it's like a moment of like remembering how much God's protection was over me and over my kids. I remember jumping into our minivan and throwing it in reverse with such velocity that our, our boys were, what, how old were they? Nine, they were nine and seven, six, nine, six, and three. Yeah. Nine, six, and two. And um, our basketball goal was lowered so that they could, you know, get a basket in. And I ran our van into right, right in to the whole basketball goal. And I hit it so hard. I sliced our van open, the whole top of our van open. And Whoa. I just, my kids could have been playing basketball at the time. I mean, I, I, I was just out of my mind and for the next 24 hours was pretty much in that state. And then I remember thinking, you know what, I'm not leaving my home. Justin's leaving our home. And so I made him leave and I came home with our boys. And I remember my mom handing me the phone and I was like, I don't want to talk to anybody. She's like, this is a counselor. It was a counselor with focus on the family. And I just unloaded on him. you would have thought I wasn't a Christian. I mean, I'm from Southside Chicago. So, you know, it's like at some point it all comes back. And um, the counselor said, if you love Justin, you will let him go. And I thought, you are an idiot. Like, maybe I even said that. Um, But I was like, why why would you tell me? Why would, like, you're, I'm a Christian. You know what I mean? Like my loyalty piece was in high gear at this point. I'm like, I want him back. 
And he said, until you let him go and release him to God, until you let him go, he will forever use you as his scapegoat to all of his issues. Whoa. Wow. And, um, you, I mean, you said, if I let him go, he's going to choose her. Yeah, I did. I forgot about that. I did. And he and when I said that, I said, if, if I do that, he's going to go choose her. He's already choosing her now. I'm like, I just don't know if I can do that. I said, what if he chooses her? And he just replied, he already has. Mm. And so I remember going upstairs and with my mom and a dear friend, and we packed all of Justin's things up. And I remember like smelling his clothes and packing them and just crying. It was like, it was, it was like death, but it was worse than death because he was, he was still alive and well. He just didn't want to be with me. Mm. And that really began my journey of getting honest with myself. When Justin and I were married, we were married for a year. Uh, I had come home and Justin looked like he had been crying. And he said, I can need you to sit down. And I said, okay. It's like, I need to tell you something. And I was like, what's wrong? Did somebody die? He said, I just got off the phone with your mom. And I said, okay. And my parents had been married for 25 years. They had never had a honeymoon. So my sister and my brother and I had worked really hard to save up money, celebrate their 25th year anniversary and send them on a honeymoon. And uh, he said, your dad has been having an affair and your parents are getting divorced. Hmm. And I think being 21 years old with this little boy and newly married, that was a shifting moment for me that the first 10 years of our marriage, I treated Justin as if he was going to have an affair anyway. Mm. Like I wanted to be completely known by him, but I only gave parts of my heart to him in fear of this happening. Yeah. And so now that my biggest fear had come into fruition, I had, I had hit rock bottom And I'll never forget God whispering to my heart, losing everything, like losing Justin and my best friend and my church and church planning is hard. It's the hardest thing I've ever done next to parenting kids. He just whispered, rock bottom is still solid surface to stand. Wow. Like, will you, will you stand with me? Do you believe that I I have you in all of this? And it was like for the first time where Justin was wrestling with his truths of what he had hid, I was wrestling with this hiddenness where I I had a marriage where unforgiveness reigned. Like I, I never wanted to forgive Justin. I made him my God. Like I needed him to be my Messiah. I needed him to fix the hole that my dad had left in my heart. And he, it was like this expectation he could never fill. So he always felt defeated and I always felt unloved. The affair was a symptom of much greater issues in our marriage, but it was the symptom that ended up bringing us to our breaking point where it's like there's a passage. couldn't ignore it anymore. Yeah, there's a passage in Lamentations 3 where it just literally talks about God like taking your face and, and smashing it into the gravel. It, it was like this 
this moment of brokenness that you could not manufacture. And the powerful thing about it, Sarah, is that God was there. He was faithful and he was loving and he was kind and he was gentle and he was patient and unconditional in his love. And it was like, for the first time, I realized I didn't need the relational title. I didn't need the pastoral title. I just needed God. And it was like, he was saying, I've been here the whole time. Hmm. Wow. I mean, that's really, really powerful. So you're going through all this and you're staying home and he leaves, right? That's correct. Okay. Justin, you're now off to go be with this other person, but I don't think that happens, right? That's correct. Okay. What happened next for you and then what pulled you out of your sin? Yeah, I mean, I think it was prayer warriors in our church that prevented this person and I from getting together um, in that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to the, ho- I, I went and checked into a hotel. This is on a Sunday. Um, as I arrived there, a lady from our church called and uh, said, if I wanted to restore my marriage, if I had any hope at all, I need to go to this counseling appointment that, that they had made for me the next day at this counselor's office. And I had never been to counseling. I didn't want to go to counseling. And, but I ended up going uh, to this counseling appointment kind of defiantly. And the lady asked me, she said, what do you hope to g- gain from this counseling appointment? I said, you know, if I'm just really honest with you, I'm, I want you to help me figure out how God's going to bless my life no matter who I choose. And she said, well, I can help broken people. I can't help hard-hearted people. Oh, that's good. And I didn't really under, I mean, I've been a Christian since I was 10. I've been a pastor for 10 years at this point. I had no idea what brokenness was. And so it was during that time, this was on Monday, after that counseling appointment, I met with a guy who had helped us start the church. And he informed me that all of my stuff had been moved into his house. Um, he handed me a sheet of paper and it said like 238 on it. And I said, what's that? He said, that's how much money you have in your bank account. Trish has taken everything else. Um, and he said, you're welcome to stay at our place as long as you keep going to counseling. And, and so it was one, once I got back to his house and I saw everything that I owned stacked up in boxes, like it was like, that was like, you know, what the hell have I done? You know, it was kind of my reaction. And I just, I mean, I literally just broke down and I mean, I, I, I just, I just thought I've, I've ruined my life. I've ruined my marriage. And, and so I really uh, wanted my marriage back. But at that time, you know, Trish was really following the advice of, of some really wise people because I had been so manipulative and so, so deceptive that if she would have engaged with me at that point, I don't think that I would have gone through the process I needed to go through to really um, get to a place where I was doing this for me personally and not just to get back home. Yeah. Yeah. And you brought up, um, or maybe it was Trisha brought up Lamentations 3. And I'm wondering, one, what that uh, meant for that time in your life? And two, what was it that broke your heart and softened you that made you really go back? Or want to go back? Yeah. So, so we didn't we we um we didn't talk the next ten days. We had a mediator that was helping us get our kids back and forth, and so she was still let me see the kids. And uh, I, you know, I mentioned like text messages weren't, you know, you had to pay like five dollars a text message at that time, and so she would send me these blazing emails about every other night, 
like two in the morning, three in the morning. And I was going to counseling by myself and I was, it was every time I would get an email, I would just lose more hope because she was just, just lighting me up. And, and kind of like what you mentioned earlier um, about apathy, our, my counselor is like, this is awesome. Like if she, if she hates you this much, she really loves you. <laughs> you know, like he was trying to infuse, you know, hope into, into the situation so that I wouldn't deviate from my plan. And he said, all you can do is be ready to, re- to be received if she lets you, you know, all you can do is prepare your heart to be received if she lets you back. And, and so, um, so 10 days into our separation, Trish called me on my cell phone. I tell people all the time, if the prodigal son's dad would have had a cell phone, this would have been a call he would have made. And he just said, I hear you've been going to counseling. I said, yes. She said, well, I'm willing to go with you. Wow. And so we started going to counseling together and it was probably a week or two into that process that, um, I had a, meeting with the senior pastor of the largest church at that time in Indianapolis. And he was in the process of meeting with our elders, trying to hold our church together. He, he really just thought I was BSing him to be honest with you in this first meeting. And he was, he was receptive to my apology, but he wasn't like, he wasn't lowering his guard. And he just said in that meeting, he said, I'm going to pray a Lamentations 316 prayer for you. And I just kind of nodded my head like I knew what that meant. <laughs> I just didn't, I had no idea what he was talking about. And he's like, you know what Lamentations 3.16 says? And I said, uh, God's mercies are new every morning. And he said, before that. And I said, what? And he said, that God would smash your teeth with gravel and rub your face in the dirt. I was like, that's what I'm praying for you. And it was this it was this epiphany for me that God offers new mercies after we've experienced brokenness. And we want the new mercies without actually having to go through something that causes us to need mercy. And, um, and so it was through that, that prayer and that process that um, um, I began to really, you know, experience brokenness and experience this almost this detox of the performing, impressive, fake person that I had created and really started coming to grips with there is a God and he actually loves the real me and not the, not the constructed me or the platform me or the pastor me. He actually just loves me. Yeah. And, um, and so that, that Lamentations 316 passage is, um, is really something that's dear to me. And I, I, uh, I shared this online last night after having a few conversations with people over the last couple of weeks. Trish and I have met with couples that have been in crisis and we give them what our advice is and they don't want to do it. And so they leave us, leave our meeting after telling us that he or she has been in an affair. And then two days later, they're posting selfies um, on Instagram together. And I, I just put online last night that I think um, most of us really want the absence of pain. We don't really want healing. And so what we do is we sacrifice wholeness on the altar of pain avoidance. And it's oftentimes through our pain that God actually brings healing to our heart. And we equate pain with the absence of God but I I don't see anyone in scripture who ever did anything significant for the kingdom of God that did not go through absolute turmoil 
and pain and suffering, not because God was mad at them, but because God used that to create a brokenness in their heart that set them up to be the men or women that he created them to be. Yeah. Oh man, that's good. Trisha, I'm thinking about the women listening right now who maybe they've just found out that their husband is having an affair or they're in the process. And I'm wondering if you could just tell us, first of all, why did you choose to forgive Justin? And then how did you do it? What did that look like? It's kind of, it it starts before forgiveness is trust and not trust in Justin, but trust in God. So when you begin to place your trust in God, you begin to understand the power of forgiveness. And there, you know, there's that famous passage in, in Matthew, I believe chapter 18, where just Justin, where Jesus and Peter are having this conversation where Peter asked Jesus, you know, how many times do we need to forgive? And then Jesus has this radical response, 70 times seven. And it truly is this moment of revelation of what Jesus is saying is that forgiveness is a process that for someone who has just been told that their husband or their wife has been unfaithful, there is an unveiling of all this pain that we assume forgiveness is this one-time act of all. Like if you forgive, then you've forgiven every single aspect of your hurt and your brokenness and your wounds. And what Jesus is saying is that it's, it's a process. And now 13 years removed, I mean, it was 13 years ago on the 9th of October, I realized that, that in that process for me, um, one of the biggest gifts our counselor gave to us is that you can't heal a wound you don't give a name to. And so I had to begin to name my wounds. And when you name your wounds, you begin the process of forgiveness. Naming your wounds is like this reality check that this is my life. It's like you being honest with God in yourself to say, this is horrible. Like, I don't know what to do with that pain. And that out of that grief, we all, I mean, for many of us, I don't know about you, Sarah, but like, I don't choose to be angry. Like, I don't have to say, oh, I really need to be angry today. Like, that just is a natural process for, I think, all of us where we feel hurt and slighted and then we feel angry. And I think this is where couples, I know for Justin and I, for years and years, would get um, off the wrong track is that in that anger, the only thing I knew what to do with it is to choose bitterness. Because bitterness, I don't think people choose to be bitter out of a malice intent. I think we choose to be bitter because it's self-protective. If I can be bitter, then it was just like what you were saying, Sarah, that you could like cut yourself off emotionally. Like you were just kind of numb. Nothing had really happened, but it was just, it was just enough to be like, uh, I don't, I just don't even care anymore. And really that is, it's a posture of bitterness that that person has either hurt you or hasn't met your expectation of what you think they need to be in your life. And for me, it was this, this reality that I had spent the first 10 years of our marriage, a bitter person. And I just thought to myself, I'll just be a little bitter, right? You're like, I'll just be a little bitter in this aspect of my marriage, but bitterness always lends itself to resentment. 
And resentment is like this cancer that it doesn't affect just one relationship. It affects your entire being. And so now that my worst nightmare had come to pass, bitterness was not healing my heart. Bitterness was not protecting me. It didn't feel safe anymore. And I, I was tired of feeling insane. And I know that people listening to your podcast will probably resonate with that. It's like you have the same fight over and over again. You never fight about anything new, but in your mind, you're like, it's going to be different. Like it's going to have a different outcome. And when it doesn't, to do the same thing over and over again is insanity. So you just, you just get to the end of yourself that you just don't want to feel insane. And and that's when forgiveness changed for me and how I saw forgiveness. That is so good. This is so powerful, you guys. What changed for you in your marriage? Because obviously you stayed together, you made it work, uh, and you've been together for now 23 years. What changed in your marriage? Well, I think, you know, everything changed. I think the most important thing was each of us were willing to do what was necessary to mm-hmm. find healing personally so that we could bring that into our relationship. And I think that's the biggest thing that couples, they don't, it's not malicious, but most couples have wounds and baggage and hurts and unmet expectations and possibly abuse. I mean, one out of every three American women have been abused, um, one out of every six men. And so statistically speaking, there's a good chance that your spouse has experienced some type of abuse. And we bring all of that into our marriage relationship and we think, well, if we just love each other, it's going to work out. And I think most couples don't drift because they want to fall out of love. They drift because there's an unidentified or an unaddressed area of brokenness in their heart and soul. And the more you live with someone, I love, you know, Gary Thomas talks about this in sacred marriage. It's like a, it's like a, not a window, it's a mirror that that person holds up to you. And so you're constantly reminded of your fallenness and your brokenness. And if you don't address it, then you just become resentful of it. And so I think for each of us, what helped us change was, or change our marriage was this willingness for Trish to identify she never caused the affair, but she contributed to the dysfunction of our marriage before mm-hmm. the affair. And I took full responsibility for the affair, but that choice was a visible and very costly and destructive um, symptom of a, of way deeper issues. And so I could apologize the way the affair, but never really change my heart. And I could, you know, try to make it up to Trish the rest of our marriage, but never really fully be able to do that because that's not really in, um, embracing forgiveness. Forgiveness is, and grace is unmerited favor. is something that you can't earn back. And so I think being willing to do that then set us up to not have a perfect marriage, but to have a marriage that recognizes our own fallenness personally and extends grace and accountability in the context of that imperfect, you know, imperfectness. And so, you know, we, we just have a lot of fun together now. We, we know each other deeply and we know that we are fully known and yet we're still fully loved. And I think that's a, that's what we all crave, but it's also something that we fear. We, we think if my spouse really knows me, they're not going to love me. And so we don't compromise truth because we want to be liars. We compromise truth because we want to be loved. And what happens is you, 
when you compromise truth in your marriage, you sacrifice intimacy because intimacy is really what intimacy means is to be fully known. I think brokenness always has this negative connotation to it, but brokenness is a posture. It's a posture where you put both hands out and you say to your spouse and you say to God, whatever it takes. And in that posture of brokenness is being fully known in that posture of brokenness is understanding that, um, you know, forgiveness is free. Trust is earned. And so when you live in a posture of brokenness, you're willing to um, walk the long road to earning trust again. And the power of forgiveness is that like when you forgive what they did to you, um, it's not like they're getting a, um, a pass on what happened to you. What you're saying is when I choose to forgive, they don't win. Christ wins because he wins your heart. And when you realize that forgiveness will resurrect all the parts that bitterness tries to destroy, you, you never want to live in the dark again. It's a moment, it's a garden moment that all of us will forever have that Adam and Eve have where Satan will forever whisper, did God really say, And we've lived so many moments of, did God really say that when you live in a posture of brokenness, you don't have to wonder anymore because you're able to respond. Yes, he did. He did say that there's power in forgiveness. He did say that he would be with me regardless of what happens in my marriage. And when you know that God is trustworthy, you're able to live in a life where you can be fully known and experience what it means to be fully loved. And now that we have that marriage, there are hard times. We do get on each other's nerves, you know, here and there. But what I realized in the garden is that there's only one enemy and Justin is not my enemy. When you realize that your spouse isn't the enemy, that you only have one enemy who seeks to kill and destroy, you stop taking everything personally and you start seeing the 30,000 foot perspective of the spiritual battle. And in that spiritual battle is not defeat. In that spiritual battle is this reality that Jesus modeled that his death on the cross, that power of forgiveness, while we were all just messed up sinners, he still chose us. But the story didn't stop on the cross, that on the third day he rose again. And in that, we all have the opportunity for Resurrection Sunday, where relationships can be made anew. And sometimes that's a daily, a a daily work in our hearts. But when you realize that God truly is who he says he is, it will always outshine choosing a life apart from him. Oh my gosh. You just preached. So good. Justin, what do you want to say to someone who is on the verge of an affair or in one right now? You know, I think, for somebody who's on the verge of an affair, I think what, you, what you've convinced yourself is that it's about that relationship or it's about what's not happening in your marriage relationship. But the truth is, a, a friend of mine said this to me um, the day I confessed my affair. He said, you're throwing up in your mouth and thinking that it's food. Oh. And that's what that's what sin does to us. It convinces us that God is holding out on us mm-hmm. and that there's a better life you know, available to us. And, and I think what, what the lie is that my life is going to be better if I have this person or if I don't have my spouse. And that's not true because 
you're bringing yourself into whatever relationship you're in. And if you're broken enough to have an affair, you're broken. And that broken aspect of your heart is going to be in whatever relationship you're in. And so until you get that fixed, uh, it doesn't matter what relationship you're in. And, and I think, you know, one of the things that I have tried to model is if I spent as much time investing in my marriage as I do complaining about it, it would be really better, a lot better, you know? And so a lot of people just complain about their spouse, but they don't really invest in them. And so if we spend as much energy and time actually pouring into our marriage relationship, as we do our jobs, as we do maybe this other person that you're texting or this other person that you're flirting with over, you know, over Facebook or whatever. One of the most popular searches to find our website is Facebook destroyed my marriage. Mm -hmm. And it's actually the number one search that point people, the Google search that point people to our website. And the reality is Facebook didn't destroy your marriage. Um, there was deficiencies in your marriage relationship long before Facebook came along. And so addressing those is going to be the key to actually realizing that the path you're going down is not going to be life-giving to your kids. It's not going to be life-giving to you. And ultimately it's going to bring about a death that you don't, you don't see right now. And one of the things that, that we say all the time is you don't have to experience moral failure to live in God's grace, right? And, and so this might be, for somebody listening, this might be your moment of God's grace mm. right now. He might be saving you by listening to this from a mistake that you may not recover from from a marriage standpoint. Your spouse may not take you back. Um, your, your kids may not forgive you, right? And so maybe this is God providing, like you said, Sarah, earlier, providing a way out. Yeah. Um, it's just up to us to take those. Justin and Trisha, thank you so much for being on the show today. And real quick, tell listeners where they can find you. Well, you can find us at refineus.org. It's our website. We have some resources on there. Um, we have some marriage videos that you can sign up for for free and, and be a part of our community. And then we're on the road several times a year. So there's a listing of all of our speaking engagements that are on our website as well. Awesome. Thank you guys so much again. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Complicated Heart Podcast. Loved this episode? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Reviews are how people know if they should listen or not. So please, if you like the show, take a minute and give it a review. Thank you so much. If you want to know more, check out sarahmay.com forward slash the Complicated Heart Podcast. See you next time.